to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Today, I want to talk to you about something so important that I honestly can't think of anything more important. I'm referring to the chaos around what was supposed to be a presidential election, one that was clearly understood, or should have been, by anyone who understands our Constitution and believes in free and fair elections. Federal elections are supposed to reflect the voice of we the people. Our voices, as we choose the people, we want to represent us and lead us in the coming terms. You know, some of my fondest memories, memories surrounding my being old enough to understand elections and even before I was old enough to vote, was the excitement of the campaigns and the orderliness of the process. I remember being so impressed when I heard the story of Harry Truman winning the 1948 presidential election. His opponent was Thomas A. Dewey, who was expected to win by a landslide. There is a famous picture of Truman with a big grin on his face, holding up the early edition of the Chicago Daily Tribune with the huge headline, Dewey Defeats Truman. Dewey was favored to win in a sweeping victory, but Truman won 303 electoral college votes compared to only 189 for Dewey and 39 for Dixiecrat candidate Strom Thurmond. The story was a classic in American politics. But here's what struck me. Even though the nation was in shock by the astonishing win by Truman that swept not only the presidency, but the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate, and the next day didn't bring riots, there were no demonstrations in the streets, no violence, people went back to work. They stayed friends, and they moved on. And they said, next time. But this year, the chaos surrounding the 2020 elections was orchestrated by the left in the most outrageous and despicable way. They totally corrupted the process and turned the voice of the people into their own wish list, regardless of what we the people wanted. They devised and demanded a system of mail-in ballots that would be sent to everyone, and many people received multiple ballots, ensuring that corruption would contaminate the election. And so it did. Then, before all the votes were even counted, the media, which answers to the wishes of the Democrats, called the election for Biden prematurely and possibly incorrectly. And then the Biden team began setting up their transition team and demanding federal money to fund it, despite the fact that races in several states had not been decided yet. The arrogance of the Democrats and their disdain for the American people and the rule of law was beyond unacceptable. It was un-American and it was inexcusable. So now the post-election chaos is running rampant throughout the country. And what have we got? An election without certifiable results, 
a so-called president-elect who was designated by the press instead of the voters, but is moving forward and putting his cabinet together, even so, even while the votes are still being counted. A rampage of potential voter fraud has turned the election results upside down. We'll talk about it all and a lot more because what is happening in this country right now is unprecedented and has created the basis for a major constitutional crisis of historical proportions. From the day he came down the escalator in the Trump Tower in New York City and announced that he was candidate for president, Donald Trump has been under vicious attack by the media and by the politicians who want him gone, the Democrats. They want him gone and destroyed so badly that they accused him of crimes that he didn't commit, spent millions of dollars trying to find something, anything, that would drive him out of the White House. They even impeached him on made-up charges and said it was in the interest of the American people. What rubbish. And the big irony of all this was that the crimes that they accused him of were crimes that they themselves had committed. Collusion with Russia, extortion of the Ukraine government. This, my friends, is called projection, where you blame someone else for the same thing that you have done. And we've talked about it before. We know, for example, that Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, colluded with the Russians with the sale of Uranium One to the Russian company Rosatom in a $145 million deal. Well, uranium is considered a strategic element, and we're not supposed to sell our stores to any other country. But following this purchase, strangely enough, the chairman of Russia's newly acquired Uranium One made a $2.5 million donation to the Clinton Foundation. And the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 colluded with Russia to develop the discredited Steele dossier that was used as a basis for spying on the Trump campaign and on the president himself after the election. Now that's collusion. And we all know, of course, about Joe Biden's extortion of the Ukraine government in his now famous appearance at the Council on Foreign Relations. There's a video of him bragging about having threatened the Ukraine government with withholding a $1 billion loan guarantee that had been promised to them by the president if they didn't fire a prosecutor who was investigating the company at which Biden's son, Hunter, had a lucrative position on the board. And yet, the Democrats accused Trump of extorting the president of the Ukraine when that didn't happen, and Trump proved it. The Democrats still tried to impeach him on that. Projection. It's a favorite strategy of the Democrats. You blame someone else for what you did, only you change the circumstances a little bit to make it plausible. So we now have a new round of dirty tricks by the Democrats in a scandal that political writer Ken Timmerman has rightly called the election heist. 
In fact, he wrote a book about it called The Election Heist, and I recommend you get it and read it. Anyway, whatever you want to call them, these dirty tricks ranged from convincing states to employ massive mail-in balloting, as we said, using the China virus as an excuse. It will keep people safe because they won't have to go to the polls and expose themselves. But this mail-in ballot scheme opened the door to massive fraud. Surely you've heard by now some of the many stories out there about how mail-in ballots were used fraudulently to create a new voter base made up of dead people, pets, people who had moved to other states or out of the country, and names simply made up out of whole cloth. Voter turnout, including mail-in ballots, exceeded 100% of registered voters in 378 U.S. counties in this last election. The average is about 67% in a presidential election. But these were more than 100%. That's not even possible. It was no coincidence, for example, when on the morning of November 4th in Detroit, long after the polls had closed and the last ballot should have been admitted, three vehicles pulled up to a ballot counting center in Detroit and delivered more than 138,000 ballots to be processed at four in the morning. Remember, the polls closed at 8 p.m. This was four o'clock the next morning. And miracle of miracles, every single ballot was made out with only one name on it, Joe Biden. 138,000 ballots at 4 a.m. on November 4th. These are the lengths that the Democrats will go to to get rid of Donald Trump in the White House and put their own puppet, Joe Biden, in the Oval Office. And it didn't stop there. There's a long-standing federal regulation that allows poll watchers from both parties to observe the voting and the ballot counting. But in a number of poll counting rooms this year, Authorized Republican poll watchers were either barred from entry or thrown out of the ballot counting room by the Democrats. Nothing suspicious here either, is there? I could go on and on, but you've probably heard most of the stories by now anyway. And there's a bigger issue at hand, and it's important. More than that, it's critical. Our country is in a struggle for survival. Biden stole a saying that you hear a lot from conservatives. He's using it now. But we're the ones who really take it to heart. And the expression is that we are in a mortal struggle for the soul of our nation. And we are. And if we are not vigilant and strong, we are about to lose it. You know, the man who has drawn tens of thousands of people to his rallies, who has worked tirelessly for the people of America over the last three and a half years, that man, Donald Trump, is now the loneliest man in Washington, the loneliest man in America. Since the first moments of his campaign, the assaults on his integrity, his intelligence, his loyalty to this country, and his honesty have never stopped. Anything that he accomplished has been attributed by the Democrats to Obama, and anything that has been difficult, like the pandemic, has been laid at his feet, and he's been blamed for all of it. So here's my question. If the Democrats prevail in this election because of their chicanery, how can we ever hope to have 
free and fair elections again. How can we hope to save the nation that we love so much? We're going to be talking about this a lot later on in the show because my guest today is Ken Abramowitz, who just published a book called The Multi-Front War. And he talks about all the kinds of threats that America is facing and that Donald Trump has been dealing with. You can find it on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble online. Ken also publishes a weekly newsletter in which he points out some of the most pressing issues facing Americans today and how they can be addressed. If you're interested in checking this out, and I highly recommend it, his newsletter is called Save the West, and it can be found at savethewest.com. I have to admit, I really have not been myself this week. I very rarely get angry, and my temper is usually in a box somewhere in the attic. But this week, I was furious. The idea that the Democrats could go so far into the swamp of corruption and try to destroy a good man by cheating and stealing the votes of hardworking Americans who have already been suffering through the past year because of the China virus. That was unforgivable. And the audacity and arrogance of the Democrats made me furious. The stories of corruption and fraudulent ballots keep coming in. <laughs> they keep coming in, and yet the Democrats are digging in their heels. They're making their plans as though the race has already been decided. And they're criticizing us for not accepting the verdict of the press. Wait a minute. The press? Since when does the press decide who gets elected, and who gets to go to the White House. Well, here's a secret. It must be a secret because the Democrats don't seem to know it. The press doesn't get to choose the president. It's the people, we the people, who choose the president. And the press just has to wait like the rest of us for the results of the elections. And now, with the growing number of stories about election fraud and the appalling number of accusations that have now caught the attention of the Supreme Court, the need for justice for the president is becoming more and more apparent. The next few days and weeks are going to be long, and for many, they're going to be difficult. When I was young, I would be facing a difficult time that I couldn't resolve that nobody could resolve for me, my mother used to try to reassure me by telling me, this too shall pass. And I know for sure that what we're going through now, that will also pass. But here's the thing, the way it ends, what happens after all the votes have been counted and all the cases have been tried, what happens then will decide the future of America for a long, long time. You know the story. If Trump is reelected in the end, several things are likely to happen. He's likely to continue to stimulate the economy. The stock market will react with exuberance. He'll create more jobs, lower our taxes, move forward with his Middle East peace initiative, bring our military men and women back home and ensure that they get the medical care they need, and he'll support the R&D on a fast track to bring a vaccine and a cure for the China virus. 
That's what we can expect from Trump. And if Biden is elected, he's also told us what he will do. He'll raise our taxes by canceling the Trump tax relief. He'll appoint Beto O'Rourke to take care of the gun problem and somehow deal with the 300 million legally owned guns out there in America. He'll drive manufacturing back offshore with high taxes and kill the fossil fuel industry. He'll support elements of the Green New Deal that will bankrupt our cities, and he will drive our economy into the ground because his economic policies just don't make sense. So here's a thought. My mom said, this too shall pass. But there's another way of looking at things. This may pass, but my friends, it's not over yet. And there is a lot that can still happen. So we shall see. Now, I have to take a short break, but when I come back, I'll introduce you to our guest, and we'll have a lot to talk about. So stay tuned. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Now joining us today is Ken Abramowitz. Ken is a threat analyst whose career has led him to be managing director of the Carlisle Group, and before that, as healthcare industry analyst for Sanford C. Bernstein and Company. His passion now is to share his analytical skills with the world on the grave threats that face us today. His new book, The Multi-Front War, deals with many of these threats, and that is what we're going to talk about today. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Your book is very ambitious and extremely important, and it's also very interesting. It's really a must-read for anybody who is interested in what is going on today in America, and I'll bet that includes just about everybody listening today. Tell me, Ken, what gave you the idea to start writing this book? Well, what gave me the idea is that I was unhappy. Uh, I, I was unhappy watching television shows, uh, uh, news shows, and seeing various uh, talking heads, uh, professors, uh, government officials, not get to the key issues. And as I built up my own expertise, I had a joke to myself that I, I felt like I wanted to jump into the television and, and walk into the studio and, and give advice to this person or that person. And, and then, of course, you can't do that. And then I said to myself, well, I'll just become one of those talking heads. Uh, I'll try to get on those shows and, and I'll, I'll, I'll do the analysis for myself and for everybody else. 
Well, that's uh, that's interesting, and the analysis that you give in this book is is really outstanding. Let me just explain one other thing. The lesson I learned is that everybody has a conflict of interest. In other words, if someone works for the government, they have to talk about the the, the government line, so to speak. Uh, and if someone works for uh, as a professor, and and he says something extra controversial it can hurt his uh, professional career at the university or at the think tank that he's at. So I just realized that everybody has a conflict of interest and, and, and can't exactly tell the truth. And that's why I decided to uh, join the effort. Well, that's good because your voice is a very strong one. And uh, in fact, you know, I didn't read the entire title of your book. It's called The Multifront War, Defending America from Political Islam, China, Russia, pandemic, and racial strife. That's a lot to cover. And you have managed to cover it in something like 147 pages. Why don't you um, tell the listeners, um, tell them what it is you mean by the multi-front war. Well, this, this goes back to another reason I wrote the book. I've identified that America is fighting, in round numbers, 50 different wars, battles, issues, challenges, problems, and dilemmas. And what happens is there is, in these 50 different issues, you, you, you will find an expert in each of the 50 issues, and each expert knows more than I'll ever know about that given issue. But if you ask expert in issue number 47, what do you think about issue 17? He'll say, you, I don't know what you're talking about. You go, go talk to an expert in issue number 17. He'll, he'll answer your questions. I'm just an expert in issue number 47. So uh, I, I decided to put all the 50 issues together and look at the interrelationship and connect the dots uh, between them, even though I don't pretend that I'm an expert in issue 47 or issue 13. But I uh, am knowledgeable enough to connect the dots between the 50 challenges facing America. That's very interesting. 50 wars and battles and skirmishes are an awful lot to handle. How does anyone manage to be able to wrap his arms around this and actually solve some of these problems, or all of them? Well, you just hit the key issue. The, the, the government can't handle 50 issues simultaneously it, it, it overloads the circuits and and, and that's that's why I, I'm worried in other words the, the government can handle one two three four five issues but it doesn't know how to handle 50 issues but it is possible to handle the 50 issues if you're organized for the 50 issues uh, and and we're not organized for the 50 issues how do you do but that we, we could be it would take one week it would take one week to fix it. Really? How do you do that, Ken? <laughs> Identify the 50 issues, get experts, or at least knowledgeable people, in each of the 50 issues. It's relatively easy to address all the 50 issues if you plan for it. In other words, if you hire 50 people who are already working for the government, it's not like you have to hire someone new. Put them together in one room. You call it the situation room or the war room or just call it the auditorium. And, and, and each of them has a desk. 
and each of them is uh, uh, either an expert or knowledgeable in, in uh, the, one of the 50 issues. And, and then you put one person in charge, and that one person in charge uh, could be the national security advisor, uh, could be the vice president, it could be a, a chief operating officer, you could call it a number of different names. And that one person goes, uh, Joe Smith, you're in charge of issue number 47. Give me a, a two minute update. What's going on today in issue 47? And then he says, does this have any implications for any of the other 49 of you? Oh yeah, number 13. Uh, what do you think? Yes, uh, thank you. That, that, that's very important issue for number 13. This is what we should do about it from the point of view of number 13. And, and so you ha have to have the 50 people together in one room. And they don't have to like work together in the one room, uh, but you know, for an hour a day, uh, they should be in one room and have a discussion about the interrelationship of everything to everything. And then people who are listening, who are not included in that list of ever so many battles or you know areas of of conflict, they can also learn from what is being discussed and maybe reapply it to something that they're facing. Yes, yes. By, by the way, uh, the, the thoughts that I have really come from the corporate world because I, I, uh, I came from the corporate world. I spent 40 years as a business analyst in the corporate world. Uh, corporations share information uh, all the time. They don't have like, uh, they have their own silos, but the silos talk to each other. So I, I'm just trying to bring normal business methodologies to the government. It's nothing more profound than that. Yeah, the problem with the government, and I, I do think this can be fixed if it's fixed at the top level, but the problem with the government is that they do not share what is in their silos with other agencies. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and, but there's another reason. Government has security issues. And so, there's, uh, so someone could say, I, I have a top secret security clearance, and you have, uh, let's just pretend, a middle level, and someone else here has a lower level, uh, what information am I supposed to convey them? What, what information am I supposed to not convey? So not only do you have the normal silos between the Pentagon and the State Department and the CIA and the other intelligence authorities, uh, the White House, not only do you have the, the normal bureaucratic differences, you, then you overlay national security uh, to it, and, and it becomes difficult to have uh, communications. Yeah, I think it sounds to me like this kind of a solution, which is very similar to solutions that I developed as, as an intelligence analyst, that the, what you need in this case are participants who have the same level of um, clearance so that they can share with each other at a level which is meaningful and not have to worry about those issues about what can I say, what can I, what can I not say. And in, in that situation, then you have a real sharing of information across agencies, and that would be essential to solving these problems. Yes. Yeah, you're exactly correct. Uh, Tell me, uh, you have one of your chapters is called. It's actually chapter two. It's called false narrative, and I looked at that and I I wondered what exactly you mean by false narrative. Could you explain that, please? 
Well, there's a, a couple of definitions of uh, false narratives. But in this definition, what's a true narrative and what's a false narrative? So first, let's go to true narratives, and then we'll go to false narratives. Uh, uh, I, I've identified that roughly a third of the population believes in what I call true narratives. And true narratives are, uh, to make it simple, are a combination of the Constitution and the Bible. If someone says, I believe in, in the Constitution, the secular law, and I believe in uh, our religious values, Judeo-Christian religious values, then I call that a, a, a true narrative. That's one issue. The uh, next issue is then what's a false narrative? Well, a false narrative is someone who uh, either disagrees with the Constitution or disagrees with the Bible. By the way, the combination of uh, the secular and the religious, the Constitution and the Bible together, I call that Western civilization. And I call that a true narrative because it's the most successful civilization in the history of civilizations in the history of the world. So we actually have evidence that it works. So anybody who opposes either the Constitution, uh, the Bill of Rights, when, uh, I, when I say Constitution, I'm including the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence, the, the, the great documents of American history. Anyone who says, I don't believe in the Constitution, Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, or I don't believe in the Bible, now they're, they're working their way onto a false narrative. So there's two huge false narratives, the Reds and the Greens. The Reds are the communist, socialist, authoritarian governments or individuals or organizations, and the Greens are the Islamist uh, authoritarian dictatorships, and those are the two false narratives uh, in the world, and those are the enemies of Western civilization. Now, you, you've uh, actually covered the Islamist threat, I guess you would say, in four separate right. chapters. Yes. Uh, Islam is both a religion and a political movement. The, the two are uh, interrelated. But what I did, or tried to do, is separate Islam, the religion, from Islam, the political movement. Even though within Islam, they don't do that. Uh, but I, I did it as an outside observer. So I did not identify Islam as the enemy. I identified Islamists, or political Islam, or radical Islam, as the enemy. And let me explain the difference. A religion is something you believe in. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, in this example, and, and you have a right to your own religion. Once you try to impose your religion on somebody else, then I call that a political movement. So if someone says, I'm Catholic, and everyone has to be Catholic, and if you're not Catholic, I'm going to kill you. Or if someone says, I'm Jewish, everyone has to be Jewish, or I'm going to kill you. That, of course, those people should be in jail. And by, by the way, it used to happen in years ago, I mean, in the Middle Ages, uh, there was a, a Catholic uh, Inquisition in Spain, and they basically said, you have to be Catholic, or I'm going to kill you. So, but uh, the Catholics outgrew that, the Protestants outgrew that. Uh, we don't have that problem with Christianity or Judaism anymore. Uh, but Islam hasn't outgrown that. So you have a group of Islamists who would say, you have to believe in Islam or I'm going to kill you. And the Sunnis would say, you have to believe in Sunni version of Islam or I'm going to kill you. And the Shiites, Iran, 
would say, no, you have to believe in the Shiite version of Islam, I'm going to kill you. That Islamism is an enemy of Western civilization. It's also an enemy of the Muslims. The number one enemy of the Muslims is, is political Islam or Islamism, because 90% of the victims of Islam, is Islamism, are Muslims. And so, therefore, and you're seeing this work out right now in the Middle East, where the Sunni Muslim countries are working very hard on improving their relations with Israel and America and shedding uh, Islamism and, in fact, putting their Islamists in jail. Yeah, it's a very unusual development. And I think one of the things, I guess, that is so disturbing to me in the current situation that we find ourselves is that we stand to lose a great deal of ground if Trump is not given the opportunity to move forward with this uh, very decisive, brand new normalization between Israel and her Muslim neighbors. I mean, that that is so extraordinary. It's been 70 some odd years. And all of a sudden, people who were enemies or at least wouldn't talk to each other or be in the same room with each other are now doing business with each other. They're traveling, they're sending, they're touring, they're open. They opened a kosher restaurant in the, in the United Arab Emirates. I mean, it's, it's just amazing what's going on. And this is the sort of thing that we really have to harbor and, and nurture and encourage. And I am afraid, and, it's, and there is every indication that Biden will not follow this path and will, in fact, undermine it by making amends with Iran and with the Palestinians, who have refused to join the, any kind of normalization with Israel. So um, it's, it, that is a very interesting situation on its own merits. There's a reason for that. Remember I said a third of the people are believers in Constitution and, and Bible, and, and th those are the Republicans. The, the Democrats are basically siding with the Reds and the Greens. The, and I remember I said that the Reds and the Greens are enemies of Western civilization. Well, the Democrat Party is supporting the Reds and the Greens. So that's, that's why the Democrat Party is actually a, a mortal threat to the United States. Well, and we can see how that plays out in these riots that are virtually destroying cities. The, They're destroying Democrat cities. It dis and yes, Democrat and, cities. They're yeah, destroying. And these are Democrat cities. And this is what is so incredible to me that the people who live in these cities continue to elect Democrat enablers to continue to destroy, destroy the cities. I, I don't understand it. There's one more uh, thing I didn't mention. The Reds and the Greens have both determined are determined to take over the world. And the reason I know that is because that's what they say. It's not like <laughs> I'm uh, imagining this. So if, if the Western civilization do not oppose the Reds and the Greens, the Reds and the Greens will take over by definition because that's what the Reds and Greens do. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, therefore, we, we have to uh, fight uh, the Reds and Greens every single day, not because we want to fight, but they, they, they've declared war on us. And so the, the Reds, putting it in country terms, are uh, China, Russia, and North Korea. That's about 25% of the world population. And the Greens would be Iran, Turkey, Qatar, which is supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. And they're about 25% of the world population.
So together, we, a half of the population, is fighting the other half. In this battle, I affectionately called World War III. Now we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation. My fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. And like us, we're pretty sure you're not happy about any of it. But this is the America we now find ourselves in. AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world, featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Before the break, we were talking about how World War III was shaping up. World War III is what you call the multi-front war. So let's get back to it. The battle between democracy, which is half the world, and dictatorships, which is half the world. So if you look at the world's population of about seven and a half billion people, 50% of us live in democracies, which I call Western civilization. 50% of the people live in dictatorships, of which there's two flavors, half and half. Half live in red dictatorships and half live in green dictatorships. The red dictatorships or authoritarian governments would be China, Russia, and North Korea. The green dictatorships or authoritarian governments would be led by Iran, Turkey, and Qatar, who are supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, ISIS which together with other Muslims who are not necessarily the problem, but together that green is the other half of the half. So in other words, 25% of the people live in a red country, 25% live in a green country, and 50% live in uh, Western civilization. That battle between those of us who live in a democracy and those of us who live in authoritarian governments, I call that conflict World War III. It's nothing new. We're just fighting this battle at our time in history. That's very interesting, Ken. And I I like the way you have framed it because I think we don't consider war as a functional part of life, but it really is. It's always going on someplace. 
And that's something that we're we're not ever going to be able to stop. The question is, can we control it in order to give people an opportunity to make the best of their lives without being killed in a war or having their lives destroyed in other ways because people are fighting with each other? You have a chapter in here, Ken, about Israel's success story. Now, people who listen to this show on a regular basis know that I talk quite a bit about Israel. First of all, I lived there for 16 years, and so I have a a, a strong background there, and I'm very interested in what goes on there. But aside from that, Israel is really a beacon of democracy in a sea of authoritarian countries. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your chapter on Israel. Western civilization, also known as democracy, is a combination of the secular and the religious, or in terms of documents, uh, Constitution and Bill of Rights plus the Bible. Well, in Israel, their constitution is called the Basic Rights. They don't have a formal constitution, but they do have something called Basic Rights, which is like a constitution. And of course, they have the Bible. And so they, they have both both elements together. The key mistake that we made is we took the Bible out of the society. In our desire to separate church and state, we went too far. And we took the church, or religion, or Judeo-Christian religion, or tradition, uh, out of the schools, and just had the schools as, quote, secular. Well, guess what happened? The Reds and the Greens said, oh, wasn't it nice of them to take religion out of the schools so we will invade that intellectual space and take over the, the portion of someone's brain that would have gone to religion. And so the Reds, communist socialists, created their false narrative religion. And the Islamists, the Greens, created their false narrative religion. And then we didn't stop them. In other words, what the schools should have said, hey, wait a minute, guys, we've taken religion, Judeo-Christian religion, out of the school. We're not going to let your false narrative socialism, communism, and your false narrative Islamism uh, into the schools. What do you think? We're that stupid? But that's in effect what we did. And so we replaced our culture with two alien cultures, which we're now suffering from. And our children are suffering from because they're not being educated. The socialists, on the one hand, have really taken over their brains and not taught them the things that we learned in school, for example, that made us literate and made us able to think critically. And instead, they are learning about social justice and things like that. But that's not what they need in order to get ahead in their lives. That's not going to help them. On the other hand, we don't allow prayer in the school, but for some reason, we allow Muslims to pray in the school. We allow discussion of socialism, communism, which is which is a false narrative of religion. So we have on the one hand the discussion of socialism and communism, and on the other hand, we are allowing our children to have huge sections of, of study on Islam and learn how to pray according to Muslim tradition. This is so horrendous, and it's so completely opposite from what our founding fathers wanted us to have in this free country. It's appalling. Yes, I agree. And now you know another motivation from my book. You know, I just stood back as a citizen and said, this is lunacy what's going on in this society, and it's easily fixable. So let's fix it. Well, it's easily fixable as long as you have people who are willing to fix it. 
But we have a portion of our population that is against fixing it because they like it the way it is. How do we deal with that? Well, yes and no. The forces against Western civilization within America are uh, two categories. This is a term I use for all forces of evil. There's the 10% and the 90%. There's the 10% who are actually evil, pure, unadulterated evil. They're, they're communists, they're socialists, they're Marxists, they're anarchists on one hand, or they're Islamists on the other hand. But then there's the other 90% that uh, I call useful idiots. They're, they're not evil people. In other words, 90% of Democrats do not wake up in the morning and say, I am evil. I want to destroy the Constitution, destroy the values of the Bible, uh, live in anarchy and chaos, have uh, mobs uh, burn down my house, and I live in a sleeping bag in the park for the rest of my life. That's why I say 90% are useful idiots. They've been exposed to nonstop propaganda and nonstop false narratives from the reds and the greens until they finally believe it. And, but not because they're evil people. It's just that if you say a lie long enough, you can get half the people to believe in it, particularly if the lie is in the stereo fashion, newspapers, uh, television, uh, radio, uh, internet, social media. You, t you keep telling the lie and you, and you can get half the people to become deranged of which 90% are useful idiots, but 10% of them are actually evil. And that 10% should be in jail, and we're not locking up that 10%. When you're talking about solutions in your book, that's one of the, the problems that you're facing. Now, now, today, we are facing something a little different, which is corruption in a process that was supposed to be beyond corruption in the, in the electoral process. How does this fit into your vision of the multi-wars that we're in and how to fix them? Well, the, the Democrat Party has gone through a transformation in the past 10 years from the Democrat Party to the Socialist Workers Party or the Communist Party or the Islamist Party. It's, it, it, it's no longer loyal to the Constitution and Bill of Rights, no longer loyal to the Bible. And so when you have an election between uh, oil and water, there's a problem. And the Democrats no longer retain traditional American values. So I, I have a joke about this. Uh, pre pretend you're playing football and you, you show up with the normal equipment, the normal team and uh, the normal rules. Uh, but the other team has knives and guns. And, and, and then they say, OK, flip a coin. We're going to start the game. You would say, hey, wait a minute, this, uh, <laughs> Mr. Referee here, uh, uh, this other team has knives and guns. Tell them to get rid of their knives and guns. We're not going to go on the, on the field and compete with a team that has knives and guns. But the Republicans didn't do that. The Republicans should have said about the Democrats, we're not going to go into this election with, with mail order ballots handed out to 100 million people. 10 or 20% of whom don't live in that area or are dead and, and, and are going to be gathered up by your vote harvesters and show up in the ballots as, as legal votes. They, they should have said, we're, we're not showing up on, on the playing field. But the Republicans did. And so now we we're, we're have to sort through the mess caused by the Democrats 
who basically the end justify the means. They want to win by any means. And if they have to be the football team with knives and guns and they win, then that's fine. But we, we, we the people who are normal, can't allow that. No, and the interesting thing is, and the terrifying thing is, that the, the Democrats are highly organized. And they, they have all of these plans and, and devious activities in place. While we, on the other hand, are not well organized, we meaning the Republicans, the conservatives, we're not well organized at all. We can, we can show up at, at, at the president's rallies in huge numbers, but that's, that's about the extent of it. And it's not enough. Well, you've gotten to uh, one of the, uh, another important issue in the book, the multi-front war, which is that the Reds and the Greens, the dictatorships, are organized like dictatorships. Like there's one, one person on top, and he says to the, his followers, do, do the following things or I'm going to kill you. Okay, sure. All right, Mr. Boss, I'm going to do what you tell me. And you told me to win the election at all costs. We're going to do it. You told me there's no such thing as morality or ethics. Good. We threw, we threw the morality away. We're just going to go out and win. Whatever we have to do, we're going to win this election. Okay. And everyone's on the same path, same mindset, state by state, city by city, county by county, precinct by precinct. Now, uh, Republicans, being what I call normal, are bottom-up people. In other words, we the people believe this. We the people do that. We the people go this way or that way. We are organized to be free thinkers, to uh, think for ourselves. And we don't obey orders as well. There's a gap between the management of dictatorships versus management of uh, normal people. And so that's why you need a strong leader like a Trump. The problem Trump has is Trump does not have a chief operating officer under him. And any normal big corporation anywhere in the world, you have a chief executive officer and a chief operating officer. Uh, Trump does not have a chief operating officer, so he has to manage these 50 different wars, battles, issues, challenges by himself. It's not humanly possible to manage 50 fronts uh, without the proper management team under you. And so you identified a key gap between Democrats and Republicans, and Republicans have to fill that gap by having stronger management under the uh, presidential level. This is uh, a huge, huge issue. I, I would venture to say that, and I, I'm not the first one to say it, that we are in a constitutional crisis of such magnitude that it has never, we have never had anything in America that even approaches it. Even at the time of the Civil War, which tore this country apart, we didn't have these issues. We didn't have so many issues. This is something unprecedented in our history. So, yeah, in the Civil War, we had one issue, slavery. In, in 1861, we, we had a, a, a big war, and 700,000 or so people died to overcome that one big issue. Now we're, we're dealing with multiple issues that we're fighting, but you can put the multiple issues into the uh, boxes of the Reds and the Greens, and, and we are having a civil war. Fortunately, we're not killing each other, but we're having a cultural civil war 
between uh, democracy and dictatorships, of which there's two flavors of dictatorships. And, and uh, we have to win the war or else we will be living in a dictatorship. Yeah, and that really brings us to, I guess, the conclusion of your book, which is the, cha- the last chapter, chapter 13, which is called Winning the Multi-Front War. I have this theory that either we, people who are normal, win, <laughs> or the people who are abnormal win. It's not that complicated. Okay, so how do we win this war? Aside from your war room, which I get, what do we, the people, do? How do we save this country? They, they go through this, this process of projection where they blame us for the things that they're doing. And they, they put their crimes on us. But that's not the reality. The reality is they are the ones who are tearing this country apart because they are not respecting the basic tenets that this country's whole culture of liberty and personal responsibility is based on. So what has to be done by we the people in order to save this nation? We the people basically have to elect leaders who can win World War III. We have to elect leaders who first know that we're in what I call World War III, more commonly call it a cultural war. They have to come up with strategies to win the war, and then they have to implement the strategies. Another way of saying the same thing is the bottom-up Republican Party has to act in some ways more top-down. In other words, we have a strong president, President Trump, and we need his, uh, he should make uh, Pence the chief operating officer and acknowledge that we're in a cultural war for the life of the country, come up with a strategy to win, and the book is the strategy to win, and implement the strategy. Basically, identify the 50 different fronts and win on every front. Come up with 50 different strategies to win 50 different battles. Some of them are physical battles, but 90% are not physical battles. They're cultural or economic or legal battles. And, and we have to come up with that strategy to win. We, we don't have that strategy to win. And that's why I wrote the book, to create the strategy to win. Well, I'm very glad you wrote it. It's a very interesting and thought-provoking book. I want to thank you, Ken, for for being on the show. This is the Friedman Report, and we try to focus on the most important issues of the day. And you, your book really wraps itself around many issues that are critical to the survival of America as we know it. So I want to thank you for writing the book. I will continue to be uh, talking to people about it because I think it's very important. And I thank you for being on the show. It's been a wonderful, very interesting conversation. I, I hope you'll come back sometime and we'll talk about some of these other issues that are really, really important for the future of America. Yes, sure. You're welcome. And let me just add something in 15 seconds. When people order the book, let's say on Amazon, there's two ways to order it. Uh, the multi-front war, and multi-front is one word. If you make multi-front two words, you won't get to the book. So the multi-front war, or under my name, my formal name, Kenneth Abramowitz, and then you'll get to the book. So I'm just alerting to people who might choose to want to buy the book in either a, a book format or an ebook. And I personally highly recommend it. It's really a must read for every American who believes in America as it was intended to be and wants to make a difference going forward. You'll find it at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Ken, thank you very, very much and good luck with your book. 
Well, this is the end of our hour, my friends, and I thank you for sharing it with me. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.